It's always fun to give the talk the first night of a retreat because it's a talk that's intended to be somewhat inspiring and to sort of help you along at the end of a, what has often been a long first day. And so I find that as I collect material to give these talks, that I get inspired too. So um, I've enjoyed working on this today. So last Christmas, I had the opportunity to be on the big island of Hawaii. And um, a friend took me to, took us to a place um, that she knew about on the, um, I always have to think for a minute, the west side of the island over near Kona, where there is a large tide pool and every evening at sunset, the sea turtles come back to the tide pool. And if you go, you can stand there and pretty soon, one by one, these enormous sea turtles start coming in. And they come in, they believe, because it's a safe place. And sometimes they stack up. There were three or four of them that were sort of stacked up on top of each other. I don't know if they stay that way all night or not. Um, but the sharks can't get in there. And so it's really a good place for them to be. And it was just, it was so moving to just watch these great beings um, as they came to this place of safety. So last night, we did that, didn't we? We took refuge. And we took refuge in the Buddha, and in the Dharma, and in the Sangha, in that which is awake, in that which is deeply true, in the community. And we honored that we've come to this safe place. And for some of you, it was perhaps the first time ever that you'd done such a thing. I trust, I always try to say to people, it doesn't mean that you've signed on a dotted line and become a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. It just means that you've really acknowledged, you know, that it's helpful to take refuge in awakeness and truth and community, however you hold it. And, of course, Spirit Rock and many centers like that have become refuges for many people um, in our world today and have that sense of a place where we come to wake up and to learn um, deep truths and to be in community. We don't, um, at, the, at least at this time, we don't have actually any opportunity here to, be, to do solo practice, which is its own thing, but it's it's also quite wonderful to do this practice in community. And some of you already have come a number of times. Some of us have been coming lots of numbers of times. We just recently had a wonderful celebration here for our 20th anniversary. And um, some of us go back that far and farther. And in thinking about you know, this process of coming back to this place of refuge, I was remembering that in my early days of practice, I'm not sure I could have told you quite why I was coming back. I hadn't actually ever had a really strong intention to be a Buddhist. That wasn't my agenda. Um, but my agenda was about seeing deeply into the truth and about learning something about silence and presence. 
And so I had that sense that I was learning that and it was valuable. And so over and over again, I came back. And, and one of the things that's also true is that I could see that it was being helpful. My friend Sylvia Borstein likes to say, you know, there's a teaching in Buddhist practice called the Four Noble Truths. And the third of those truths is that there can be a complete end of suffering. And she said, there's a, she always often says there's a third and a half noble truth, which is that at least there could be less suffering. <laughs> so, you know, and I like that a lot because pretty much everybody who's practiced for any amount of time knows that um, there can be less suffering. We see that it really, really helps us. And so we come back over and over. And so our time together here in this retreat is a coming to a place of safety. And each of you chose to come here because you probably knew or at least suspected that that would be true. And that you're hoping, probably, that at least you could lessen the amount of suffering that you're going through. So, you know, we're in a really interesting time. People like to remind me sometimes that all times are interesting times, but I don't know. You know, this is the one I happen to be living in. And so we've got this wild and crazy election going on. And we have this huge financial mishigas that's happening. And we have wars going on, more than one. We have an environment that is stressed to the max. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, will it or won't it be okay? And, I mean, I could, the list could go on, right? And it becomes pretty clear when we start reading off that list that a refuge is probably a good idea. And then, of course, all of this is happening in the context of our Western culture, which is mildly insane and very hurried and just bent on fitting more of just about anything you can imagine into every moment and every space that exists. Makes me tired just to say that, actually. <laughs> so here's a Zen story that I rather like. There was a monk who was sweeping the grounds of the monastery. Probably some of you have that job here. And one of the other monks came up and said, too busy. And the first monk said, you should know there's one who is not busy. And the second monk, who just couldn't believe that, how could there be anybody, said, if so, then there is a second moon. And the first monk held up the broom and said, which moon is this? Mm -hmm. Well, this is one of these wonderful Zen stories. It's like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And the way to work with them, actually, is to chew on them. You know, they're not intended to be figurable right away. So how can it be? How can there be one who is not busy? And what an amazing refuge that would be if we could not be busy. About a year ago, someone said to me, somebody from my community in Santa Cruz, I'm not busy, and I intend to stay that way. This was somebody who later came on our board. I don't know whether 
Um, she's <laughs> held to that promise not to be busy, but I think she does a pretty good job of it, actually. And I was astounded. How could you, I mean, I can't even imagine being able to say, I'm not busy and I intend to stay that way. Maybe when I'm 90, I think. But um, so there's this amazing quality. And then right after that, I ran into, came up here, and my friend Norman Fisher was offering a day long here at Spirit Rock based on the Zen story that I just read to you that about called One Who Is Not Busy. And again, I went, oh, I'm not busy. You know, how do we do that? Everyone I know is busy. Right? Everyone you know is probably you're all busy. And everybody has full appointment books and PDAs of various sorts. You know, each day Google sends me my calendar for the day, all my appointments. Quite once in a while it gets to say you have nothing planned, but not so very often. And even, you know, my grandkids have schedules, you know, and they have things that they do. And and it's really an unusual thing for a child to have one of those lost afternoons that I can remember having where you go off into the woods behind your house and get lost for a while and poke around and explore and build dams and the streams and all of the wonderful things that children do when they're able to be left to their own devices. And for a variety of reasons, that doesn't happen so much anymore. So we all know that phrase that we're human doings, not human beings, except for now. So here at the retreat, you have the great opportunity of coming to a complete halt. And you've stopped. I don't know whether any of you are, have completely stopped, certainly in your mind, and um, we hope that you know, you're really able to just let go of it all and to be here. And you each, as I said, you knew that it was wise to come here and to come back into what I described last night as the sweet territory of silence. I mean, imagine, let me pick one of your busier friends and imagine trying to tell them that what you've done is you've taken five days of your life, it's probably vacation time for a lot of you, and you're sitting here in silence with your eyes closed, mm -hmm. paying attention to your breath and to your body. That's kind of a remarkable thing. It's a little hard to describe to people who don't have any sense of what the meditation world is. And sometimes when I think about this is what I do for a living, I get to sit up in front with my eyes closed. It seems even more ridiculous. You know? And so we sit with our eyes closed, and then after a while, 45 minutes, the bell rings, and then you get up and you walk very slowly, but you don't even go anywhere. You just go out there and you go back and forth and back and forth. And you know, there are any numbers of stories of delivery people and mailmen and that kind of people coming to retreat centers and to deliver their mail or their packages or whatever. And they go into the office and they say, oh, it's so sad. All those people, it's so sad. What's wrong with them? <laughs> and because it looks rather strange, you have to admit. Uh, 
Actually, I hadn't thought about this when I was writing the, while I was writing the talk, but there was one year I was teaching at an old Catholic monastery in um, upstate Missouri. And that year we had to get from one building to the other to this strange dining room through these underground tunnels. And at some point in the retreat, people were walking very very slowly and the light in these tunnels was very very dim and it was clear that you were way underground and it was very much i said to my fellow teacher it's like the night of the living dead it's so strange so it's a little odd this practice and you know the instructions that we've given you are just there to help you in this practice of doing nothing. And so, like the honu, like the sea turtles, you have realized that there's some value into finding, in finding this quiet place in this safe harbor. And, by now, at the end of a day of practice, you've noticed that it's not so easy. True? Yeah? It's really not so easy. It takes skill. One woman in our sangha in Santa Cruz decided one year that what she was going to do was when she came home from work, she was going to give herself 20 minutes to do nothing. She wasn't even going to call it meditating. She was going to do nothing. She said it was remarkably hard to do nothing, to really let herself not even do meditating, because that's kind of how it is, right? Well, at least I'm meditating. So to do nothing really takes some attention and some intention. So we know that the natural world has its own rhythm of stopping. You know, once upon a time, the nights were dark. Not so true in lots of our cities and things now, but out here, you know, particularly if you can get away from the dining hall in those places, the night is dark, you know, and it happens, and winters are cold and wet, and we pull in a little bit, and we're indoors more and quieter. There's tribal customs of early peoples, of, for example, menstruating women going off and being by themselves and being quiet, and even though Maybe that wasn't so great from a feminist perspective. It also created a sense, a cultural sense, that these times of apartness and quiet were actually helpful for rest and reflection. And sometimes life creates pauses for us. You know, we have accidents. A year ago, I had an accident in my car that really slowed me down for a few months and took a while before I could pick up and do my normal life, or sometimes there's a surgery or an illness or someone close to us dies, and so we stop and we tend to whatever needs to be tended to and the time for healing. But it's interesting, isn't it, because often when those things happen, we don't like it. We push up against it. It's like, wait a minute, this isn't right. There's something bad or wrong with us because we're not well yet. You know, and how come I don't get better faster is often the question. And I think it's possible to come to 
really honor those times, sometimes to create them. You don't have to get sick, you know, you can go ahead and have your time of retreat and, and we make it on our own. So here's, here's a poem for, for you. This is from Tesla Melos. And it's about that kind of day where things pretty much stop. He says, a day so happy, fog lifted early, I worked in the garden. Hummingbirds were stopping over honeysuckle flowers. There was nothing on earth I wanted to possess. I knew no one worth my envying him. Whatever evil I had suffered, I forgot. To think that I was once the same man did not embarrass me. In my body, I felt no pain. When straightening up, I saw the blue sea and sails. Just that, you know, those wonderful, wonderful days of not doing much. But the Zen story, the story about the monk, points to something more. It's not just about stopping. It's not just about creating that space and time. But it also points us towards an insight about an insight that helps us to find a different stance towards the activity in our lives. And it's about how to be not busy, even when there's a lot to do. The broom, you know, the work itself might be the second moon. That's one way to hold it. So it really points towards learning a place of presence in our own lives, such total presence that whatever it is that we're doing, we're doing it from a place of stillness. You know, T.S. Eliot says in that, has that wonderful line in one of his poems about the still point where the dance is. So some of the question for us in a time of retreat like this is how can we work with our time here to facilitate finding that kind of place of presence in our lives, that place of safety. So there are three qualities that I've played around with in terms of thinking about how we do this, things that might be useful for you while you're here. Curiosity, confidence, and contentment. And these are all qualities that I think that, that can, we can use as we explore our situation here to get better acquainted with, with this resting place of ours. So curiosity. You know, children have lots of curiosity. I have, I have two grandsons. Um, one is five and one is eight. So they're at that wonderful little boy, adventurous, curious place. And they're always asking why. And one of them, I've quoted many times in Dharma talks, he loves to come into a room and he puts his hands on his hips and he looks around and he says, what's going on in here? You know, what's going on in here? That's a great question. What's going on in here? You know. Or sometimes, you know, we have a question, a why question that we ask a lot. Why me? You know, why, why is this or that happening to me? Sometimes it's more complaining than curious, but it's interesting when we start holding it as curious. 
sometimes curiosity is what brings us to practice. You know, maybe it even brought you to this retreat. Often it's what brings people to a first retreat. We get kind of curious. What's, what would a retreat be like? You know, maybe your friend told you about, you know, how you could go on retreat or you read about it in a book or whatever and, and then you get kind of interested. Sometimes, you know, as we live our lives, there's a kind of desperate edge that begins to come to our curiosity. Like, what is going on here? What is it to be human, to have this life and this body that we're spending so much time in this retreat being with and looking at? And, you know, I'm getting to be a certain age, and... You know, there's that description of life about how it's like you're getting on a cruise ship to go out and sail around for a while and then sink. (laughs) Um, uh, So, you know, so what's that? I mean, what's the point? Why get on this boat and just sink? What can it all be about? And then you start thinking, well, how come I'm never really very happy? And why do I keep going around in circles? And what is it? You know, my life doesn't work quite right. And so often it's those kinds of questions, that edge of curious, that little desperate curiosity that brings us to practice and we begin. And so, you know, you read the book or you took the class or you listened to the tape or, you know, you've downloaded something from the internet. That's the scary thing. Those of us who give Dharma talks, you know, every now and then I hear from somebody, so I just heard a talk of yours on the tape, on the internet. (gasps) Oh, Okay, so it's out there, you know, all kinds of wonderful talks and teachings are out there. And the thread in many of the Buddhist teachings that you come across is bring your attention to this moment, this very present moment, not the past one, not the future one, but just this one, and be curious, be really Curious, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, the mind itself. That's what we've got. There's nothing else. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. That's it. And we're invited to penetrate our experience with our awareness. What's going on? What is the nature of my experience? What is it to be human? One of my teachers, I've so appreciated this instruction of his, said that curiosity was one of the most valuable spiritual tools that we have. And his understanding is that there's never any end to being and to that about which we can be curious. Just keep going deeper and deeper, you know. And um, in the Buddhist lists, Investigation is one of the ingredients of the enlightened mind. It's, it's understood to be an important aspect of waking up. And so we investigate. And notice it says investigate our experience. It doesn't say identify with it. Just get curious what's happening. One of my current practices, which I'm so enjoying, sort of arose after a visit to a planetarium this summer and um, seeing those astounding images of the nebulae 
of these vast regions, star nurseries and galaxies upon galaxies. There's a great site called the Astronomy Picture of the Day. I suggest, strongly recommend you go take a look at it. And just sort of going, what? And realizing that me, Mary Grace Orr, in that picture is nothing, nothing, teeniest teeniest, infinitesimal, tiny little speck. That's me, you know, and that's you. And Marcy today said, be in your body as though you'd never been in one before. What's going on here? What, what is this thing, this hand, this leg, this back? this head. And as we go through our time together and work with the different parts of the body, that will be a really great edge to bring to your practice, to be really curious. And one of the things that you're likely to begin to see as we do this practice together is we begin to see that the emphasis on me in questions like, why me, is not so useful. And actually, the, the why part of those questions is much more, more interesting. What are the conditions that give rise to this particular experience? And so we bring that investigative edge to every experience, to the breath, to the body, to the sadness, to the anger. What's happening? And sometimes it's quite interesting because we begin to see, oh, look, when instead of just being completely identified with the pain in my body or how utterly angry I am or my fear, and I get kind of interested and look at it in an investigative way, isn't that wonderful? I'm not suffering quite so much. Huh. And so we begin to see that when we don't identify so much with it, we suffer less. And so you might want to watch for that in your, in your time here at the retreat to begin to notice what happens when you give your attention really deeply to your experience. And so we train the mind and heart to meet our experience with this interest and curiosity and investigation, not with reactivity and, and um, criticism. And we meet it with kindness and not with judgment. So as we suffer less, and as we begin to see these things, that's the place where we begin to develop some confidence. And we begin to um, trust mindfulness in our practice. And some of you, almost probably all of you, or you wouldn't be here, have some confidence in your practice, enough to bring you to a retreat. And you all, there's also the kind of confidence that is really inspired by other people, the other, your teachers or your friends who've practiced deeply. And I think it's really important that it's not, confidence isn't a kind of an egocentric or an inflated place. It's just that trust that, oh, this thing works. You know, it's like a car. You know, you get a car, it performs well, you have confidence in your car. It's probably going to drive you from home to wherever without falling apart on the freeway, you know. I was in the middle of a conversation today about buying cars on the internet. 
You know, how do you have confidence in a car that you buy on the internet? You've not, not, only, not only never driven it, you haven't ever seen it, you know? How can you do that? So it's, it's that place where we come to trust our experience because it's worked for us. And, um, and we develop, so you come here and you develop confidence in the Dharma, in the teachings, in the Buddha, and in the Sangha. Tonight you're going to chant a little bit with Marcy at the end of the evening. And there's a few lines at the end of that chant. It's called the Reflections on Sharing Blessings. It's the sharing of blessings. And it says, the Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dharma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. I love that verse, you know, that sense of really, oh, you know, this has been really a good guide for me. And when you have a good guide, I mean, think about the times when you've traveled and somebody's been your guide. And when a guide is really reliable and takes you to the places that you want to go and, you know, does all the things that you need, you really trust them. And so the Buddha is such a guide. So, so like the sea turtles, as we learn to rest in our refuge here, without busyness, you're not busy, you're learning about the one or the place that is not busy, we really recognize that this is a safe haven. And, and you maybe even begin to get the notion that sometimes, in fact, somebody even asked a question, wrote me a question about, well, you know, if you're being with the breath, how do you know when it's the right way to be with the breath, you know? How do you know when you've waked up a little bit? How do you know that you're enlightened? Sometimes people ask that question. And after a while, you might watch for this, you begin to sense that sitting itself, just knowing to sit, is an enlightened act. Knowing that that's what we need to do is actually a very awake kind of insight. That, that this safe place that we're talking about is in fact the place of attention. The safe place is in fact the place of attention. But unlike the poor sea turtles who have to go find their particular tide pools, our safe place actually is quite portable, which is really good. So when we meditate, we step into a different kind of reality, or we try to turn our attention into a different reality. And, and I think of it very much as a place of not knowing, you know, of, of mystery and not knowing. That's one of the things that those images of the nebulae remind me of. How can I possibly begin to understand this? And Suzuki Roshi, one of the great Zen teachers, said, you know, wrote a whole book that he called Beginner's Mind, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And he was really saying, you know, that mind of the beginner where you don't know is very important. And one of the most remarkable things he said is that um, in the I have to, I have to, in, the, in the beginner's mind, there are many options. But in the mind of the expert, there are few. So an expert, you know, the expert knows, but that knowing often closes off a lot. And when you're a beginner, you 
can just kind of look around and not know and be open. So those of you who are really beginners here this week, you are so lucky because you don't know. You don't know what a retreat is. You don't know about Dharma talks. You don't know about yogi jobs. You don't know anything. It's great. It's really the best place to be. And for the rest of you, I invite you to forget everything that you knew about retreats and also not to know. Everything you know about retreats, everything you know about yourself, just don't know it for a while. One of my favorite instructions in the therapy world back in the days when I did that came from a French analyst whose name was Bion. And he advised that a therapist in a way, forget everything that he or she knew about their client as they walked in the door. And then, so don't worry, your, your therapist isn't going to forget everything. But, and then, noticing when particular pieces of information came back, because they would arise in the context of, of the conversation, and that's when it would be important. So if you suddenly went, oh, this person's mother, it might hook up in an interesting way. So it's not that you're not, you're not going to know in any dysfunctional way. It's just that not knowing actually is the most creative place. It's the place of the most openness. So I seem to be long on Zen stories today, but that's how it is. We Vipassana folks, we can borrow from everyone. So here's another one and with a suggestion for practice. And this is a story about the Emperor Wu, which is one of my favorite Zen stories. And the Emperor Wu lived in about the 12th century, and he was something of a spiritual seeker. But because he was an emperor, it was also really hard to get people who would teach him in any authentic way, because they were wanting favors, and they didn't want to make him angry, and all of those things that happen with people who have positions of great power. But he'd had a couple of interesting experiences, and he knew, he, he just knew that there was more to see and to understand than he was getting. So one day, he walked into his, you know, reception room, court area, and there, amongst all of the Chinese courtiers, was this great, tall, red-headed, blue-eyed giant of a man who, unbeknownst to him, was Bodhidharma, the great Zen saint. But he didn't know that. And he was really curious because this guy stuck out. And he had a certain, you know how people sometimes of great charisma have that kind of energy about them. So he sort of thought, oh, this guy's kind of interesting. So he decided to test him, and he said, um, he went over and said hello, and said, um, you know, I've built a lot of temples and schools and hospitals and those kinds of things that emperors do, and it was quite a long list. And he said, what about the merit, you know, because in that in that time, merit, earning merit, was one of the reasons you did good things. It sort of got you cosmic points. Mm -hmm. And Bodhidharma said, no merit, which is not what you say to an emperor. And so he 
kind of was startled. It was like, no, no merit. So he thought, well, this, this guy is being really, you know, he's not treating me like an emperor. So he got really interested. So then he said, well, what about all these holy scriptures, all these stacks of spiritual writings? And Bodhidharma said, nothing special, vast emptiness. So the emperor was very taken with that. What did that mean? And kind of blown away, and it took him a minute. And so then he looked at Bodhidharma, and he said, who are you standing there? And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. <laughs> so when I first heard that story, it came to me actually in the middle of a, of a solo retreat. And um, I just loved it. And I began to experiment with trying on not knowing. And so, you know, it's very interesting. You can sit someplace, you could sit there on your cushion and go, who are you sitting there to yourself? And then you could say, I don't know. Now, it sounds a little weird, but it's quite interesting, actually, to just, it's like you're trying it on. What would it be if I didn't know? What would it be, you know, here I am sitting here. Who are you sitting there? don't know. And to just not know for a moment, maybe even just an infinitesimal second, and then try it again. And while you're here, you can also, if you don't like that practice, you can just notice the places where you don't know. You know, there'll be plenty of them. You might not know the schedule. You know, what, what happens next? And just relax into not knowing. So, oh, I don't know. Huh, that's an interesting place. Wonder how I'm going to find out. Maybe I'll just sit here and not know and see what happens. Wonder what the instructions were this morning. What did they say? And maybe you don't know. Oh, what would it be if I just didn't know the instructions? You know, maybe they'll come back. You know, you think, oh yeah, the breath or something like that. And just not know. And, and get kind of curious about that not knowing. And you might begin to find that you can actually, it's actually a very wonderful place not to know. You can rest in it a little bit. It's much easier than needing to know everything. Needing to know everything and to figure everything out is really hard work. And it takes up a lot of time up here. Have you noticed? The mind figuring, relentlessly figuring and planning and comparing and contrasting. Whew, it's exhausting. You could just let go of that for a while and not know. Now, this doesn't mean in the world of time and space that you're not going to know. You know, when the day comes, you'll walk into the right room over there in the dormitory. You'll, you will remember that. Trust me, it really does work. You'll put on the right pair of shoes, and in the very end, you will get into the right car and drive to the right house. All of those things will be there as needed. And this other is really a balancing that you can begin to work with. And as we do that, you may notice that we're really beginning to be okay with what is. And there's a kind of contentment that begins to arise. 
we're just here in this moment. We're curious. We're confident that this practice is useful and helpful. And we get to be contented. We're not busy, even when there's a lot going home. And this I, me, mine thing is not the center of the world, you know? And we see whatever is. We see the process and the flow of the nature of existence. Galway Cannell says, whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. So each evening, the honu, the sea turtles, following some deep instinct, come home to rest in safety in their pool on the Hawaiian beach. And really the question is, can we, by bringing careful attention to our own experience and situation, find that secure resting place that is not busy? Can we bring curiosity and confidence in our practice to our time here? So that when we return, as they do, to the busier oceans of our lives, we have a deeper sense of that rhythm of safety, of activity and rest. And we know then the contentment and the refuge of seeing clearly. So one final poem. This is from Francisco Albanese, called The One Who Is at Home. He says, each day I long so much to see the true teacher. And each time at dusk when I open the cabin door and empty the teapot, I think I know where he is, west of us in the forest. Or perhaps I am the one who is out in the night, the forest sand wet under my feet, moonlight shining on the sides of the birch trees, the sea far off gleaming. And he is the one who is at home. He sits in my chair calmly. He reads and prays all night. He loves to feel his own body around him. He does not leave his house. So stay just as you are without moving into any formal position and let's just breathe together for a moment. So thank you very much for listening. And you have about, oh, actually almost 45 minutes for walking. It was a short talk. So enjoy 
you're walking in this beautiful dark night. And then at nine o'clock there'll be another sitting. There will be some chanting. Um, so please come and enjoy that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.